0: This podcast provides a platform to discuss important questions and complex issues, challenge the status quo, and confront the boundaries of the establishment. I'm retired police chief Daniel Hahn. I went from being arrested at 16 to serving over 34 years in law enforcement. My goal is to keep you informed with news not being reported, voices not being heard, and the untold history of how we got here so that we can create a way forward. Uh, welcome to a way forward. I have a very, very special guest today and I don't want to do her a disservice. So I want to make sure that we all understand uh, what kind of trailblazer amazing person that's with us today. Today we have Miss Johnny Reddick, who is was a retired assistant chief from the California Highway Patrol, which, by the way, is one of the largest law enforcement agencies in our country with over 7,500 7, sworn officers and a total of over 11,000 employees. A 29-year veteran rising through the California Highway Patrol ranks from county clerical worker to breaking through the less than 1% ceiling for women of color in executive leadership positions in law enforcement. She was the first female captain in the Contra Costa CHP area in Martinez, California. And as assistant chief, she worked in the Golden Gate Division in the San Francisco Bay Area as part of the executive oversight of 16 field commands with over 1600 personnel that worked in nine Bay Area counties and over 100 cities and over 7 million in population. She has been an incident commander for critical incidents, civil disturbances, mutual aid events, and coordination of natural disaster response and oversight. She's also a member of many organizations, of which some we are both members of. The International Association of Police Chiefs, of Chiefs of Police, National Association for Women Law Enforcement Executives, American Association of University Women, and the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, of which she's the chairperson of the Safety and Wellness Wellness Committee. So this is somebody that's done a lot, but isn't done she's still doing a bunch of stuff she just recently published two books one her leadership memoir called black white and blue surviving the sifting and also another book called survival guide to law enforcement promotional preparation and we will definitely talk about these books before we get done but welcome Johnny.
1: thank you thank you so much that was a a kind introduction So
0: thank you. (laughs) Well, could have gone on for a lot longer, but I figured I'd try to cut it a little bit short. So with somebody that has uh, blazed some trails and been places where not too many people like yourself have been before, especially in law enforcement, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your upbringing and eventually what prompted you to go into a profession where you surely didn't see people that looked like you, especially in high positions. So tell me a little bit about how you grew up and what made you want to get into law enforcement.
1: Well, um, I'm just going to be transparent and say before (laughs) we actually went live, I told you where I grew up and you giggled. (laughs) It was a good giggle. It was a good giggle. (laughs) But um, so I grew up in California and I grew up in Bakersfield. Uh, For those in California, it's in the Central Valley and um, I was raised by uh, a single mother. Uh, my mother struggled quite, um, quite a bit during our time. Financially, um, she struggled with addiction to uh, drugs. Um, she was a registered nurse uh, most of her life. So uh, when I came along, it was prescription medication at that mm-hmm. time. So, you know, working shift work, trying to stay up for shifts, needing to sleep, um, working through registries when she wasn't working. Because she was going through depression, Uh, we would be on welfare. We would live with family. We would live in Salvation Army. We live in the car. We live in a room. I mean, it was just very hectic for many of my younger years before I probably before I was a teenager. Wow. We were transient. We lived in different states, depending on where her sisters were living, is where we would go and stay for a while. Or, you know, um, when I even think back to some of those spots, when I'm I'm asked to. You know, rethink of your your journey. I don't know how we did what we did and how we made it through what we did out without for me God, and so right. I am anchored in my faith. As I began to navigate my journey, I learned about uh, that space that I needed for me to be able to, I don't know, help me to be stable because there were so many opportunities for me to go in so many different directions.
0: Absolutely, and we see it every day in our community.
1: Every single day. I mean, um, and so, you know, when I got to high schools, when I kind of started settling down for myself as well, where I was like, I don't want to go anymore, m- Mom. I don't want to go to Texas or Idaho or, you know, Arizona or wherever she was going to be traveling. And I wasn't a great high school student. I think I was mediocre at best. Um, I was striving to be better but it was complicated I was carrying so much trauma that I didn't even understand and I met a family when I was about eight years old the first time um, a a young girl I went to school with in the fourth grade and we became friends and her family became kind of my surrogate family when Uh my mother could not function for me like she needed to so when I came back at 13 to Bakersfield I, we had phone books back then. Yes. And I, I looked up those. in the phone book, the last name of the family. And
0: oh, so you hadn't had contact with them for a little bit. For a long
1: time. Okay. And, um, and I called the number because her name was her father's name, just slightly differentiated. And there was only so many in the phone book. Mm-hmm. And I called them and they were like, Oh my God, where have you been? We we have to see you. And I integrated myself into that family because they took me in and they are like my sisters and Mm -hmm. my second mother because again my mother struggled right you need community to be able to help you um, navigate and so fast forward I'm 18 I'm graduating high school and I graduate But I don't know what I want to do. So I go to apply for a job and I get a job with uh, human resources for the county as a typist clerk. And I take some junior college. And I'm working for social workers who are seeing cases. So occasionally I would see names of those I went to school with Mm -hmm. coming across. And I was like, man, I got to do something with myself. And I saw an ad in the paper. So you
0: kind of saw yourself in some of those names, yeah, sure. like potentially I could be? Absolutely. Okay.
1: I could be in the system. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I just happened to have a clerical job getting paid $3.75 an hour where I have that a That wasn't benefits. bad back
0: then. People today will say that was horrible. Yeah,
1: but that gives you perspective <laughs> right. on where we've right. come from. Right. And probably about 20, 20 and a half, uh, I saw a huge ad in the newspaper. I'd been with the uh, human resources there for a couple years, and California Highway Patrol was hiring. And, um, I was like, okay, the qualifications weren't that stiff. They're very similar to what they are. High school, uh, diploma, uh, you know, age requirements, vision requirements, you know, no felonies, et cetera, driver's license. That's valid.
0: What was your impression of <laughs> law enforcement when you were growing up with all the moving around or did, were you kind of neutral or did you have a negative impression or was it? I was what? neutral. Neutral.
1: I was relatively neutral, um, Whatever my mother was experiencing, I didn't always experience because I would be left with family, okay. and I wouldn't see her for days or weeks sometimes. Okay. So whatever might have happened, I didn't necessarily see it. Gotcha. As a young person, I the only couple of instances that I had had with law enforcement were not negative. Okay. Um, so, but I had nobody in law enforcement. I had nobody in military. The only service oriented
0: over and over.
1: The only service oriented <laughs> person I had was my mother when she was nursing and she was nursing, I would see her in those strong leadership moments of helping people. And so uh, the ad uh, was right next to the comics, which I love to read, and that's why it caught my attention, because it was a huge ad. And I was like, hmm, $40,000 a year, and I'm gonna be able to go to a real dentist with real Mm -hmm. benefits, and it has something called retirement which I didn't really understand what that meant, but I was like, man, that would be kind of a cool thing to have one day.
0: So it sounds like a little stability. Sounds was, like a little stability. That attractive I, to you.
1: That I never saw, never had. Right, right. And so I applied um, because I had no history of anything in my background. Um, literally within six months, I had uh, background investigators come into the house to talk to me and my mother to say, hey, can she go to the, we're going to extend invitation to go to the academy uh, in literally like two months uh, in December.
0: Did the fact that you were a woman give you any pause about applying, or that never really crossed your mind at that time?
1: You know, honestly, it. I, I, maybe I was that naive, but no, because I played basketball in school. Okay. I was kind of like a tomboy growing yeah. up a little bit, you know, rough and tough. Um, but I did have a period where I modeled for a little while. You so, had a
0: little bit of everything.
1: Yeah, so people didn't think that why would, why would you want to do it, for one. Two... What makes you think you can or should do it? And this came from my people that I was working with at the Human uh, Resources. At, at so they
0: weren't encouraging. They, they were, were not encouraging. They
1: were very discouraging. And uh. when I decided to take the offer and I'm getting ready to leave, uh, my goodbye gift was some weird watch that they gave me that if you wore it underwater, you could go so far deep because they heard there was diving in the in pool. In the highway patrol. At the highway patrol. <laughs> but they also said... Your job will be here when you don't make it.
0: Wow, when not if you don't make it, but when you don't. When make
1: you it. don't make it, your job will still be here. So
0: did you kind of realize what that was at the time, or you kind of just?
1: I didn't. Blew it I off? didn't. I didn't think it was necessarily so uh, deeply rooted. I thought they just didn't think that I could do it, okay. and nothing more to it. But every time I would come home to visit family, I would stop by. <laughs> Every time I promoted, I would stop by. And In your
0: full uniform? <laughs> I didn't, not, that would be nice.
1: But to remind them that not only did I do it, but I was successful while I was there. And to let them know that, um, you know, I would have liked them to be more supportive. And it wasn't entirely all of them. I had one or two that were like, you got this girl, you know, you can do this. Um, but to remind them that, you don't have to be stuck in your own mindset that you have, maybe even for yourself here. Right. And so I didn't like go in and brag about it. I just showed up, and then they would ask me how things were going, and I would share that narrative, because I found that there were people in that um, agency that they were still typist clerks. Mm-hmm. They were. They weren't even looking for their own upward mobility, right there. In they that might have order. Very
0: well, thought they couldn't. Yeah. Do it themselves. Yeah.
1: So my. So it's kind of my origin story of coming up is kind of wrapped around um that journey of my life as a child in my childhood and discovering the Harry patrol just incidentally um and then of course being influenced by chips and things like that on TV yeah. you know you, <laughs> you yeah you want to kind of be cool <laughs> you're like I want to be cool like them
0: so and i'm guessing your childhood and and seeing your mom go through those things and the fact your mom was a nurse Uh, I would imagine, heavily influenced you as a peace officer in the work that you did in the communities that you worked in.
1: Very much so. So when I said there wasn't very many champions or people that um, really thought it was something for me, my mother wasn't somebody who was surprised by the idea. (laughs) She was more like, Johnny, you actually, you can do anything you want to do. So even though I felt like... um, You know, daughters and mothers already have different relationships as they go through, you know, come into their own, so to speak. But my mother and I had even more than that because of our our journey, you know, Mm -hmm. of of her not being around a lot. And I was just angry. I didn't understand. I didn't know her own stuff she had to deal with. I just saw them for what I did um, as a young person. And so for her to be that one that said you can do it, I trusted and believed her that I could do it. Now, listen, when I got to that academy and they were yelling at me on day one. <laughs> start having your doubts. I was like, <laughs> what in the world? Because there was no real recruitment of me. There was real, really no preparation of me. And other, nobody you knew
0: to give you nobody a heads up I knew, of what to expect.
1: Nothing. Um, other than they said, you need to start running and get physically ready for the academy. So mm-hmm. I started doing that. But when I got there and they started yelling at me. And telling me I needed to go home and bake cookies with my mama and darling, all them, that, you know, because when you show up, you show up dressed with your suitcases. You're gonna have to get rid of all that, you know, costume makeup on your face and your ear, you know, all of this stuff. And then I was like, what have I gotten myself into? Because I'm not military in any fashion, um, but I had the discipline of playing basketball Mm -hmm. for several years in high school. And knew, back then,
0: coaches used to yell at you.
1: Coaches yelled at you. <laughs> um, workouts were hard. And if you wanted to play, you wanted to start, whatever that, you know, all of that teamwork. And so you just kind of started to assimilate. But what I appreciated was those folks that you go to the academy with that see you. Mm-hmm. And they're, because it's predominantly white male, there was not very many women, not very many people of color. But you have good advocates that are, um, you know, your allies that step forward for you for the right reasons mm-hmm. and help you to succeed. Because without them, I would have went home and baked cookies with my mama. and But my mama is key because we had pay phones. And so you can make phone calls um, home, right, because we didn't have cell phones and pagers. Yeah, I was going to say, you're saying we didn't have cell phones. We, didn't, yeah. we didn't, we didn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, and every time I would call, Embarrassed a little bit because I was getting emotional because it was very hard, long days, long hours, very much, a lot of rigor. She would listen to me, and I would cry sometimes a little bit, and then she would just say, but you're going to stay, and you can do it. She said, try to get sleep. She didn't give me no, you know, and that would stay her mantra my whole career of, you're going to stay and stick it out, but get the rest you need because it actually gives you, you It it frees your mind to to free yourself from what you think you can't do when you rest and restore to be like, it's a new day, I got this. And I would just every day, literally take every day for every day through that academy. But my mother was that person that believed in me to do the thing I didn't know that I could do.
0: It seems like what you're telling me sounds very familiar to my own personal experiences in the academy way because I... Everything you described was what I was thinking, because I went through that same location for SAC PD's Academy. uh, Very uh, remember vividly the yelling, and I'm thinking, what the heck, who are you (laughs) yelling at? Um, But you mentioned calling your mom, and with all the challenges you mentioned that your mom was going through uh, in your childhood, she's still the person you were needing to hear, and she was still mom, right? She's still a driving force of how you become successful despite all the challenges that the two of you had gone through in your youth. Um, you also mentioned something else that all these people in some form or fashion either didn't support you or in some way were even discouraging uh, in assuming that you couldn't make it, which at the time doesn't seem terribly unusual that somebody would think you couldn't make it because they probably didn't see too many use mm-hmm. in those roles. Um, but you also mentioned there was a couple people that even sometimes on the down low were like, you can do it, and were kind of your encouragers. And it sounds very familiar to, uh, we had um, Flossie Crump, who was the first female officer and also African-American in the Sacramento area. And these stories always are amazing to me that you have all these people fighting against you and all this history and, everything else going against you, and yet you're all very positive about the departments that you work for. You're still doing a lot of stuff in regards to law enforcement, and there was always some of those people that I guess you could say went against the grain and supported you. They mentioned those people, white males are discriminating against them, but then there's these other white males that help them. Um, So talk a little bit about in your career in the highway patrol, some of your biggest challenges and some of your biggest successes uh, in your over the span of your career.
1: That's a great question. but it, And it's kind of broad um, it, for a reason. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, so when you say challenges, um, quite honestly, for me, my biggest challenges was myself. Mm. And, um, you know, we we talk a lot of times about imposter syndrome um, that lack of confidence that we have when we show up are we worthy are we qualified and that could be from conditioning and uh, environmental influences whatever that may look like those factors but for me um, a lot of times I would get in my own head on if I should compete um, if I should participate um, if I mattered And there was a lot of work I had to do on myself. And what I discovered is as I built my competency in areas, it built my confidence. Mm. So I could sit on the sidelines and I could complain and say how I wasn't allowed to uh, participate or compete or promote or get an assignment. But if I also did not do the work to prepare me to be selected for those positions to... um, be able to acquire the thing that I thought I should get, then that's on me. And um, it took me a while to figure that out. But once I did, I started understanding what I needed to do to be able to position myself better so that when those opportunities came along, they weren't going to be challenges for me. So like I said, I came on with a high school education. It got me where I needed to go for the first probably seven years of my career. But when I started thinking about promoting, which nobody really planted the seed for me until I met um, you know, uh, one of my captains who became our commissioner who made me think about that. And who was that? Commissioner Joe Farrell. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, he was a person that planted that seed. Joe's still the, in the profession and to this day. Joe is the man, okay? <laughs> yes, he is. Um, because he wa- he saw us all as individual people and he humanized us even in our own department versus just being employees that you walk past aren't necessarily overly significant to you. If you're Commander, and maybe you're passing through this command to go to another one because, again, we're a large state agency, and Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't stay very long. They're on their own promotional journey. And so he planted that seed of that awareness for me of just how unprepared I was, although I felt like I was entitled to things. And so for me, the challenges of discovery for me and then challenges... um, relative to structural barriers in the organization and and people, some of them were personality conflicts. Um, Some of them were people who simply wanted to select people that were like themselves. So if it's predominantly white male in leadership, they're picking predominantly white males Mm -hmm. to come along and be their whatever, sergeants, lieutenants, captains, chiefs. Um, And then, you know, for me, I didn't really feel like Challenges existed necessarily discriminating against me. I just always saw them that they were based on relationships for people because... um, That's a good
0: good way to think about it, right? Because
1: when you look at culture um, and the culture of policing, um, it's very Mm tight-knit. And that's how a lot of things manifest is the way I would see them. And perhaps there was... uh, specific biases um but they were never something that i really i and this is just me like i said that i was overtly feeling uh, when i was seeking promotions now when i was an officer and a sergeant yes there were overtly discriminatory and racist people on the department because they would say those things back then mm-hmm. right to your face right yeah. in briefing and the supervisor and manager wouldn't skip a beat and would keep on doing administrative work would would continue to operate like this is just the even norm even in California that's not in even the South, in California. Right? This is California this is California this is okay. California and i mean i'm working in you know los angeles area along very the, diverse area you know ventura i'm in mm-hmm. you know ontario i'm in you know these areas and hayward the bay area and you would sit right in these briefings and they would refuse to ride with you if they had to ride with you on Graveyard they would call you all kinds of names and be like you know what and if you're going to make me ride with that bee I'm going to go home sick and they were like well uh, okay you guys are going to ride three to a car over here then so that this person wouldn't have to be impacted wow and, uh, and I'd
0: imagine when you did get promoted, some, there was probably some, because I experienced this myself, that the only reason you got promoted was because you're a woman well, or because the color of your skin or something like
1: okay, that. Okay, but I'm going to take it a step further for you, Daniel. Or you slept with them.
0: Well, that would be, yeah, I never I'm, got cause, that. Cause that I'm, would be something cause I'm, cause for a Because I'm a woman. A, yes. I'm a woman. Yes. yes, yes.
1: You know that, oh, okay. Not because so, of your abilities. Not because of my abilities or, or my skills. Right. And so, I mean, even being a sergeant here in the Valley in Stockton, I had officers that uh, would usurp my authority quite often simply because they were senior to me when I became came back because I was an officer with them. Mm-hmm. They barely tolerated that, some of them, not all of them. I had really good people I worked for um, and with. But you would have those that I would come back and now I'm leading them, and they would just n- literally not speak to you at all, hardly take your direction or order, just enough where you couldn't really write them up Um, you could have a conversation with them and they could maintain that level of just being in the room with you. But I mean, and and I constantly, constantly have felt my whole career that I had to prove myself, constantly prove myself. When I came over to the valley in Stockton from the Bay Area, investigations became a lot more complex than they were in the Bay. So when you're doing traffic investigations and other things, they weren't as complex. It was You know, a little bit simpler. It's much more complicated today than it was when I was coming up. But then when I came to the Valley, we have so much unincorporated area that we cover that's not freeway. Right. right. We're doing investigations like the Sheriff Department. What people
0: don't know is the Highway Patrol does the traffic enforcement typically in the unincorporated area. And we
1: do general law enforcement, which is everything municipal agencies do and the Sheriff Department do. And so it would take a while before... um, My partners would respond to my incidents to back you to back me up, which is a safety issue, which is a safety issue until I could prove that I could do the work and I could sound confident and competent. And then finally, one day in a hallway, one of the old timers, um, you know, he had the full on white hair looking like Santa Claus because that's usually what the top senior board looked like back then. Uh, We age much differently today. Um, now, now we
0: don't have gray hair, you know.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but he said, "Hey, um, some of us were wanting to extend the invitation to you for uh, after shift to come on over and have a soda." And a sw- soda is, you know, choir mm-hmm. practice. Right. I was a non-drinker, right. but a soda, and it was a pivotal moment to say I could be like, "No, thank you. I'm just going to go home to my family," or I could say, "How can I leverage this relationship so that?" I can now have the support I need when I'm working and for them to get to know a little bit about who I am versus just seeing me based on my gender, maybe based on my race. And it was significant because I used that in my leadership moving forward. Awesome. So
0: that is, I think, one, enlightening for a lot of people. But with all those challenges, you still... Stuck to it, first of all, with the highway patrol and in this profession and in that environment. Um, But not only stuck to it, but thrived and was very, were very successful. So with that, what would you, after this, after your formal career in law enforcement, because you still do a lot with law enforcement, what would you say are the one or two things that you're the most proud of or your biggest successes that you, that that bring you the most pride just to you uh, that you were part of or that you were able to accomplish in the Highway Patrol?
1: I would say being able to use my gifts, my God-given gifts, truly. I mean, I don't know that I knew what my purpose was for a long time, and sometimes if you, for me, when I navigate things and I'm not purpose-driven – I can be very frustrated. I can feel lost in what I'm doing. I, I don't know my my reasoning for, you know, getting up every day and, and and donning the uniform and dealing with the pressure, you know, the pressure of feeling like I have to be perfect, the pressure that I have to perform, just all of that. So what I found most rewarding was the ability to be able to um, help other people inside the department because our Focus when we don the uniform oftentimes is outwardly focused how mm-hmm. we're going to go out and provide that service and protect and serve because it's on every patrol car in some fashion but what I realized is that um, we can't do that work without the people that we work with and the people we work with are coming to us with their own experiences that they're having outside of putting on the uniform and I found that um, I would be a counselor, I would be a coach.
0: They have to be healthy, too, to be able to do a good they job. they got to right? be
1: healthy, too, but they also have aspirations for where they want to go in this journey of their own, but a lot of times we don't have great pathways for them to figure that, you know, the pathway is, is mucky, it's muddy, it's they don't know, and so I found that um, while I had to lead people and also give direction based on, you know, protests or whatever we're doing, they also were navigating life, and they needed to, you know, find ways to promote. And so, when I look back, and the the, the beauty of how it works is, you never know really what you're doing <laughs> while you're doing it, until much later. Right. And I had um, somebody who recently promoted to one of the very highest levels of the organization just really thanked me for how much I invested in them but oh. more so how I changed the quality of life for not only them, but for their family. So those implications on when we give time to people and we really see them and we help them, it changes everything for them and generationally for them and their family if we do it right. right. And to me, that was, that's probably been my biggest reward is how that happened for people. And I was able to be that advocate and be used Um, to do that and that's why I still do that even after retiring
0: you know it's interesting you say that we had um, uh, Leah Albright Bird on A Way Forward Uh, matter of fact um, her podcast was recently released and she was um, sucked into human trafficking as a young teenager Mm. and one of the things she said surprised me uh, and I'm not sure why it surprised me but I think it would surprise most people she said, and you can imagine her relationship with law enforcement yeah. being arrested and yeah. um, going through all those things, being in the world of human trafficking. Um, she said what she learned is that officers have some very similar traumas that she had with all the things officers see throughout their careers. So um, it's interesting you say today that you're, one of your biggest successes you feel is helping people inside the department. So yeah. I have... Uh, couple uh, follow-up questions on the mentorship uh, aspect of your career and your life. But I want to go back to your mom. Uh, I'm curious, what what did your mom think at, like, graduation? What was your mom's reaction when you were successful in completing the academy?
1: Well, there was a lot of tears um, and just, I think, mostly pride. Um, and, and, and you know, my mom is passed now for many, many years. And She wasn't a big communicator on her life. I, I, my understanding of her life were my observations Mm -hmm. and then later being filled in and informed by my aunts Mm -hmm. to share things that my mother didn't Didn't share with me at that time. But I think great pride and probably the pride rooted in the fact that I may not, unknown at that time for her completely, but I may not have to deal with the struggles that she did as she was, moving through her own life mm-hmm. because I was set on a different path right. of, of service that was grounded in something um, like law enforcement, you know, and it's a noble profession. And so when you look to that, you, you, that pride is different. I feel for her that Johnny's going to be okay, mm. you know, Good, you know, I, that's what I feel anyway. Right.
0: Right. So you mentioned uh, helping others in the department. so. Like, What advice would you give with all this that you have gone through and been successful in the world of law enforcement and elsewhere to a young person today that is thinking about law enforcement? Because we're currently in an environment where officers are leaving the profession in droves, um, probably more so than I've ever seen in my entire career. And the people coming into law enforcement is dramatically less than it was When you and I applied Um, so if there is a young person that is maybe even just slightly thinking hmm I wonder about law enforcement or even specifically the Highway Patrol what advice would you give that young person
1: well first of all before I think about the advice I would give I want to lean into the change that's shifted the social change that has shifted around the perception of law enforcement and when you and I came on it was a very popular admirable thing to do almost like you were joining the military Mm -hmm. um, but you were joining your local law enforcement and there's been a lot of social change that have shifted that perception Mm -hmm. but I also want to challenge challenge law enforcement um, and other leaders to we can't we can talk about the truths that are out there, but we have to be careful how we talk about truths because it doesn't encompass every single individual. When we say and continue to tell our uh, police professionals that you are under attack, that the community um, you know does not like you, they hate you. You know, we have to gear up and be defensive and go out there and be armored. when if you were to take a sampling of people, depending on where you took the sample from, you might find very much so that a large majority of the population still feels the very same way that they did for us, but it's not amplified. It's not magnified. Right. It's not going to be on the media because that doesn't drive the news. It's not going to necessarily be on um, in the narrative all the time because that doesn't evoke right. the emotion that we want and create the what my daughter calls drama, right? So we have, you know, things to you know keep us all uh, bunched up about. And so I'm overly encouraged. So I am a professor at the University of San Diego, um, and I teach. Still working. And I, <laughs> um, I uh, teach a graduate uh, through a graduate program for law enforcement and public safety leaders where we talk about emerging trends and issues that are, that are going on and how they're struggling with these conversations with their teams and their people around morale, job satisfaction, engagement, which has everything to do with recruitment and retention. And we talk about a lot of things, but what I discover is we don't execute a lot of things. And so that becomes the challenge. So when we're looking at recruiting um, young people, to them I would say, what are you doing if you are interested in law enforcement to learn more about it, Mm -hmm. to become informed and educated? So, for example, I'm also adjunct at uh, San Joaquin Delta's Post Academy, where these are individuals interested in being in policing going through an actual academy. And then you have programs like at Sac State where you can be in the, the leads or the scholars program where you can mm-hmm. get your college units, be exposed to different law enforcement agencies, learn the different classifications. Learn the
0: real deal instead of just the what you see on TV on chips.
1: instead. Of, like, yeah, versus <laughs> just what you hear. Now it's like on Snapchat, Instagram, right, right. Twitter. Those are all pieces of information. But you can learn to understand what classifications are in policing, um, what it actually calls for in policing. And you can also um, decide if it's going to be good for you early on and to learn what are the factors, what are those variables that remove you from being competitive in a process. It very well, you may feel it could be your race and your gender. But when we look at your background, what have you been doing? You need to know what is not acceptable if you're going to choose law enforcement. If you're going to choose law enforcement, you have to lead a lifestyle that's very different than your friends and your peers. Do I believe there's space for law enforcement agencies to re-audit and look at policies, processes, and procedures um, that we filter people through? Yeah, we have to adapt. We have to have flexibility. We cannot stay the way they were when they hired us today because that does not work. Um, The conversation about education and creating and uh, leveling up our professionalism by requiring education, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing, but you need to have some flexibility in what that looks like and what that can be a formulation of. But also, where are we looking for these young people at? We often look for them in college and universities, which is good we look for them at sporting events we look for them um, you know maybe in high school but we don't really have anything where we start where they're maybe 11 or 12 they're in their tweens that's what they're called where you start to formulate not only or do we admire police and they are heroes and firefighters but we're not educating and informing them and exposing them to how they can become one or why mm. they should the why for their their service or their heart of interest. Right. We, we do one and dones, we do events, uh, but we don't have programs anymore. Mm. Um, and so I feel like there's a space for young people. Yes, you need to inform and educate yourself and get exposed and hear some ways, but also agencies. We don't get in the community like we need to. We step into the community and then we step back into the office. We step into the community and we step back into the office. We forget that the community is an asset they're a bridge for us to be able to build the relationships that we need for people to want to have interest and, and buy-in to policing.
0: And last question before we get to what you, so, something that you're doing now. Um, along those same lines, you know, it's I don't think there's too many days where you can turn on the TV and watch the news if that's what you do. I've even seen it on the channel that I try to only watch ESPN and it even comes on there at times is something about law enforcement, defund law enforcement, get rid of law enforcement, um, some along the same things that you had just mentioned. What do you think we as a society, not just law enforcement, but we as a society, law enforcement communities um, need to do to be able to improve the level of trust and partnership and cooperation uh, between law enforcement and the communities that law enforcement serves?
1: Well, that's a big question. Mm-hmm. That's gonna, the million-dollar question. It's the million-dollar question. It's the million-dollar question. Uh, you know, a lot of things agencies are doing are really good things, and it's expanding. Community engagement practices are growing. Um, you know, relational policing is, you know, kind of at the root, and it's growing and understanding relational policing. Chief Victorian out of uh, Waco, Texas, speaks on this quite a bit. And it's powerful when you think about relational uh, policing in that aspect but when so I think of law enforcement a little bit differently especially now that I've retired and I'm moving into an academic space where I'm growing my knowledge in a different way and I'm looking at us organizationally and um, how we're the structures the frames around the organization in which Mm -hmm. we work but we don't think like a corporate business does we still think like policing agencies almost from the early 1900s. We mm-hmm. still function that way, even though we are multi billion dollar agencies for some of us. And we have so many resources and assets. But we still don't understand the importance and the value of investing and developing programs that place us in the community in collaboration. We do. Again, coffee with the cop, we do different things like this that don't allow us to really understand. So I, I would encourage agencies, if they could, do you have a research and development department, people who are looking at evidence practices um, on how to collaborate that aren't your officers working in ev- research and development? Are you outsourcing to really hire and bring in people who maybe have worked with big corporate companies to help you to know how to um, increase your community collaboration and your partnerships. Because the community is an asset. Right. The community has scholarship for you. There are lessons to be learned from the people and individuals in the community that we just don't know. So I recall you doing listening sessions when you were chief at SACPD, and I had an opportunity to sit in on those because I was part of IACP's uh, Mm. Human and Civil Rights Committee. You weren't allowed to be in the room, but we were with the community. And we were thinking we were going to hear these very big, you know, things that were concerning the community. simple stuff, huh? It was very simple. (laughs) The simplicity of availability and accessibility to their police department, to their officers working the road. How approachable are they? How responsive are you? So, collaboration isn't always, um, complex. Doesn't sound like rocket
0: science, right? They just want a human, just basic human. They want,
1: they want to be involved. So if you're talking about reducing crime and, you know, um, working with youth so they can have better opportunities and keep them out of the pipeline to prison and helping our homeless, you know, challenges that we have, when we look at root cause for social issues, It's really not that complicated, but what are your wraparound services? You know, are you looking at the root of why um, certain communities don't trust you certain ways? Because there's There's history there. There's history there, right? And, you know, but we also understand generations change some of the history within the community as well as in policing. But we keep wanting to fit one to the other, but we're not quite matching it up. So uh, to me, it just takes um, good people finding the right people to help you to find those evidence-based strategies that are working and implement them, but don't make them the flavor of the month, the flavor of the year. Um, Actually make them part of your DNA for your department and your agency, and if it doesn't work... Try it a little bit, and if it doesn't work, get rid of it, but try something new. Be willing to just be evolving evolving and be outside the box. Stop being police. I don't mean to say that in a bad way. Stop being police and be human. What do people need? What do humans need for connection and for us to actually create the change we're looking for? And so be out of the box.
0: Amen to that. And I might add that uh, just recently you facilitated a, a noble meeting in our region uh, and you're very involved with Noble, who works on bringing qualified people into law enforcement, but also works on that relationship between mm-hmm. law enforcement and the community. So I want to end on this. You, um, you stopped being in formal law enforcement, I guess I could say. And then you uh, did this thing like where you became an author. <laughs> and you wrote a book that's called Black, White, and Blue, surviving the sifting. So talk a little bit about why did you do this and what is the purpose of the book?
1: Well, I think a lot of us, uh, you know, whatever our stories are and our journey and our position, we carry like this story inside of us and and you know, we have this uh, idea that man, I want to write a book, right? <laughs> so I've carried this in my spirit probably for 25 years and But I was ashamed of a lot of me. Remember, I told you I had to get out of my own Mm -hmm. way. So I was like, I'm not worthy to write a book. I'm not qualified to to write the story. And I had a uh, woman who reached out to me. She was doing her dissertation and she wanted to interview me for her dissertation. And so we got on a call, and it was probably about 45 minutes or an hour, and she had this list of questions, but she simply asked me the first question. And that was it. (laughs) And she (laughs) just proceeded to listen to me. And I would check in. I'm like, "Uh," she goes, no, keep speaking. And when when we got done, she said, Chief, I just want to tell you, you inspired me so much by your story. She said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, well, actually, I have. I just... Haven't gotten around I to. I can't read. get out of my own way. Yeah, I haven't gotten around <laughs> to writing it. And she goes, "Well, you absolutely have to." And she goes, "I'm gonna send you something." So she sent me um, something to inspire me. And she goes, "It doesn't. Your book doesn't have to be complex. It just has to be your story." And so what she sent me, I read it, and I was like, "Wow! If if they can write that and do that, why can't I?" Mm -hmm. And so I decided to frame my book around the fact that she interviewed me and begin to tell my story. And um, I wrote it because I wanted to inspire people, human people. So when I went to want to publish it, I was told, oh, well, you're talking about God in there. You're talking about too many personal things. You need to stick to leadership principles And we can add a little... Don't do what you want to do. Don't do what you want to do. And I was like, but it's been in my spirit for so long that it's supposed to touch not just people in uniform, but people, Mm -hmm. because our human experience is what we carry with us all the time. Um, And so it is about my life. It is about leadership. It is about those lessons that I've learned along the way. Uh, It's about being a woman. It's about being a... you know. uh, A person who struggles just like everybody else has a funky, dysfunctional, you know, childhood and has a dramatic, funky, dysfunctional life. (laughs) But somehow I'm able to lead. I'm able to help many and able to survive the sifting process that takes place over that course of my life. And it's around my faith. And um, my belief is that it will inspire, encourage and help other people and give them hope That, you know what, if I could do it, if I could do it, you can too.
0: Which I'm sure there'll be plenty of people won't have your exact story, but will find portions of your story that matches theirs and say that very thing. But it sounds to me like what you're saying is that there was people that say you shouldn't write this book or you can't write this book or you can't write it this way similar to what people said before you applied to the highway patrol and throughout your career and you did it anyway and I'm literally holding the book so clearly you did it anyway I and did you did it, it anyway. your way in a way that you think will help other people. So last question for you if some not if because I'm sure there's plenty are are listening to this and you inspire them in some way how can they get a copy of black, white, and blue, surviving the sifting?
1: Well, there's several ways. So it is on Amazon, and you can also go to my book website, which is me, www.johnnyreddick.com. That's me. But also it's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. It's out there in the world. Um, And if you do and you are inspired, please leave a review. Um, And you can also reach out to me. I'd love that, actually.
0: Wow. All right. So Amazon or go to your website, so, Johnny, uh, you know, I've I've known you for a long time and I, I actually didn't know all of your story that you shared today. I assumed it was somewhat similar to some of the things you've said today, because I know uh, many women in law enforcement that, and I know their story. So I assumed you've probably had some of those same challenges. But uh, I've known you for many years. You've inspired me and I know you've inspired other people. And I know you will continue to inspire other people, not just in law enforcement. Um, so thank you so much for taking your time and sharing your story with with folks. I, I really, really appreciate all that you've done and continue to do.
1: Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I think I mentioned it to you before. You were one of those folks that um, were a model and a mentor for me, too. Oh. And I think we don't realize that when we're out there um, walking and walking the talk and we're actually living out what we're supposed to be. And again, I believe that's our gifts and talents and we're out there to help and serve that we're there for one another. We have to see each other. Um, and I just thank you for that. So thank you.
0: Thank you. And I'll end on this. I, I'm, I appreciate that you brought up your friend's family in Bakersfield because I'm a firm believer in my own life. My mom, you know, being adopted, I believe saved my life and, there's no reason why she needed to adopt me. that She chose to do that. And in your story, here's a family. They didn't need to do what they did for you. And yet so many times we see young people not allowing people to, to speak into their lives and to help them. Right. And it seems like every single person I talk to has a story where somebody um, helped them achieve their dreams or their goals. And so I'm so glad you brought that up about the family that that helped you because we need to allow people that want to help us to help us. And I think we look at very successful people and think that, you know, I can't do that. Well, all of those successful people had somebody that helped them. They didn't do it on their own.
1: And we just didn't arrive at the success. (laughs) Right. It was a process. (laughs) Right. So trust your process. Yes, yes. So thank
0: you, Johnny, appreciate it. Thank you. One of the big purposes of A Way Forward is to hear different voices and different opinions, because that is how we can make informed decisions ourselves. So if you are someone that would like to come on a way forward to express your opinion, go to chiefhan.com forward slash podcast. Chief H-A-H-N dot com forward slash
1: podcast.